I'm Stephanie Hammond, and this is the Fruition Podcast. On this show, I sit down with passionate people who've brought their dreams to fruition. We'll explore different versions of success and fulfillment and dig into what was on their mind along the way. With these conversations, I hope we can all expand our sense of possibility. And who knows, maybe hearing their stories will inspire you to take action on yours. Hello, everybody. I hope you're having a beautiful day. Welcome back. Today, we're talking to Bobby Becker from Maui Homegrown Coffee. This is the most insane coffee I've ever had in my life. I, I'm i obsessed with it. I would think about it when I would go to bed at night and look forward to getting it at the farmer's market. It's insane. It's hand-picked, dried in the Maui sun, and you can taste that. I swear to you, it's so, so, so good. And I didn't know anything about Bobby. I just met her at the farmer's market, but I wanted to hear a little bit more about the farm, and little did I know she has this fascinating story. And so you're going to hear that today. This is her passion, and... She does so much good in support of the land, of the wildlife and the birds that visit her land, and in mentorship in the community. The consistent themes across our conversation are trust and patience and community. She really set her sights on something that she wanted or the feeling behind something that she wanted and allowed that process to unfold naturally without forcing it to happen faster than it was supposed to. So you'll see that she was guided by the people in her community to these different phases and places within her life. And these experiences allowed some of these dreams to unfold. And not in the timeline that she might have expected initially, but in the timeline that was meant to happen. It's a good practice and patience for me. Once I get my sight set on something, I want to make it happen immediately. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing. I love Bobby's story because she really allowed for a natural process. And it brought a lot of ease into what was a pretty difficult life. And she really built her life intentionally. She took very intentional action to support herself and to make this dream possible. And so I think it's a good example of Um, visualizing or setting your sights on something that you want and then patiently taking the steps and and allowing yourself to receive help from the people around you. So I hope you enjoy. She's awesome. And please try her coffee because it will change your life, I swear. The one thing that I'm obsessed with this week, other than Bobby's coffee that you can get at MauiHomegrownCoffee.com is Zen Spray. We're keeping in theme with the Hawaiian small businesses. This Zen spray puts me to sleep every single night. I spray it around my head and then I spray it on my pillows before I go to sleep. It is a calming blend of essential oils that I take a deep breath with all the smells and it immediately soothes me. It says it promotes health, well-being, and a peaceful state of mind while clearing negative energy and raising the vibration in your environment. You don't have to do it just when you're going to sleep. You can spray it throughout the day. It totally resets me. Just take a deep breath. Keep it in your car. Keep it in your room. Keep it in your office. Whatever you want. You can find Zen Spray at zenblends.net. Z-E-N-B-L-E-N-D-S dot net. I'm telling you, it's good stuff. Give it a try. It'll put you right to sleep. Okay, I'll see you on the other side. 
Bobby. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for chatting with me. I would love to just jump right into it. <laughs> Good morning. I am right now in upcountry Maui, and I'm sitting here with my sweater on because as I look at my outside thermostat, it is 59.2 degrees here. Insane. <laughs> here at an elevation of 2,650 feet, we have uh, chilly nights through the months of... Yeah, usually, you know, mid-December through um, early March. And that's good for the coffee. Um, I believe that I've been told that, you know, there's 33 climate zones on the planet and the Hawaiian Islands have 31 of them. No way. I've never heard that. Isn't that amazing? Yep. So we have full range of everything from wet to dry, um, warm, very warm to um, quite chilly. I mean, people always say that they're scared they would get island fever, but there's so much diversity. I Like, I can't imagine ever getting bored. Well, um, I would, you know, I would have to say a lot of that depends how you kind of connect yourself with the community. And I was very lucky to come here and feel like I wanted to be doing some farming venture. I didn't know exactly what I thought I would come here and grow proteas, those wonderful uh, exotic flowers. But mm -hmm. instead, what I found was a, um, a started but not in production little coffee farm. So wow. that has definitely kept me from having island fever. <laughs> yeah, you're like nonstop busy. <laughs> Wait, I want to transition back to where you were living for 40 years in Arizona. Were you growing flowers at the time in Arizona before you moved to Maui? No, 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 no. I just happen to have very green thumbs. Um, mm. And so I've always had like a backyard garden. I was 18 years in Phoenix, Scottsdale area. And um, that, of course, is, you know, with irrigation, it's a mecca for growing all kinds of things. But then I moved to Flagstaff, Arizona. Flagstaff has a very short growing season. So you really learn how to do what you can in 100 days. You're going to have to give me some tips after this because I can't keep anything alive. <laughs> <laughs> Were you born and raised in Arizona? Actually, uh, my parents are both German. They immigrated here in the early 50s. Um, and my father was asked to come and teach at the University of Oklahoma in Stillwater. So um, I was born in Stillwater, Oklahoma. But when I was three weeks old, he got a new job in Phoenix. And so they moved to Phoenix. I was there from one to three, at which point my father said, we've got to go back to Germany and show our parents, our granddaughter, their granddaughter, their daughter. So then I was back in Germany and Austria um, until I was about six and a half. And then they moved back to Phoenix. And when I was 18, I moved to Flagstaff. So do you remember anything from those days oh, in Germany? Yes. Oh, yes. Really? Oh, yes. oh, a lot. And especially what I remember, the best parts of it were spending time on my father's, um, my aunt's. Um, she was married to an Austrian farmer, a subsistence farmer in the Alps. And when I first went there at the age of, you know, three and a half or four, he was farming with horses. They did oh, not gosh. even own a car yet. And so anyway, yes, I, <clears throat> I have fantastic memories of my time in Austria um, and seeing somebody work pretty much from, you know, dawn until dusk, but being incredibly satisfied with the work. He had milk cows that needed milking. The pigs got the um, all of the leftovers from the inside the home. They had chickens and the two horses, which um, really fed my love for horses that I still have to this day. 
Was it a gorgeous property too in the Alps? I mean, I can't even imagine. Yeah, you know, it's kind of hard to beat green meadows with big, huge peaks coming out right from the back of a house. It was pretty amazing. Wow. So did you kind of dream of that as a child when you went back to Arizona? That I mean, what a drastic change, first of all. And did your family plant plants or keep up any sort of gardening when you went back to Arizona? Like, was there any consistency or were you just dreaming of this faraway land? Well, um, what that that exposure did for me is it made me horse crazy, as many young girls are. So I spent my entire youth wanting to speak, read, learn, um, watch, nothing but horses. And so finally, when I was in seventh grade, I got my first horse. And I did quite a bit of um, horse training and showing through those years. But to go back to the plants, um, my father bought, um, they bought a property in Scottsdale, Arizona, where it used to always be citrus groves. And then, of course, the developers came in and they took out the citrus and they put in, you know, homes. And so my father had this vacant lot and a home and he planted 101 different kinds of palms on the property. And so we were way into having to care for the things that they planted to make the yard beautiful. And of course, at that time, as a kid, when you're every weekend supposed to be helping out with the yard work, you're like hating it, right? But yeah. it's amazing how we become our parents. I've definitely, definitely have a lot of respect for that adage now because, you know, in a certain way, I have become my parent. I would just as soon go out there and work in the yard on a weekend now um, than anything else. So, yep. I don't think that's such a bad thing. It sounds like they taught you to appreciate the little things, connect with nature and enjoy the simplicity of chores and and daily life, you know, yep. and those are valuable skills. So yep. not a bad thing. <laughs> it's nice to at the end of the day, look out there and go look what I did. So that's, yeah. that's the beauty of farming in general. To have something tangible to appreciate. Absolutely. So yeah, so that was that connection from the parents, to, um, the aunties, and all the way up to here. Were you thinking, maybe I'll do something with horses, maybe I'll show professionally, or, or were you interested in farming as a career? Well, I would have loved to um, been swept up by some wealthy person so that I could have <laughs> kept, um, you know, playing with horses for the rest of my life. The most expensive sport <laughs> on the planet. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but somehow or another, you know, reality struck in uh, as I went to college and it was like, oh, geez. What were you studying at the time? Actually, I was kind of studying animal science and mm. um, uh, animal husbandry. And then um, I was with my first significant other, and he ended up getting a job in Flagstaff, Arizona. And so um, that's how we happened to move up there. And okay. From Flagstaff, I, you know, we're, we actually built our own first house. We bought a kit house, um, bought five acres of land. Um, the kit house was delivered in September, and we thought we would be having a big Christmas party in the house that we built that year. The reality turned out to be that it actually took four years to build the house and the barn, not just four months. And we did it all by ourselves, though. And, wow. Um, 
Flagstaff, Arizona actually is um, a place that used to get very, very cold, have very, very significant winters. By the time winter came that year, um, in January of that year, we had the basically the A-frame up. Um, it was just all tongue and groove with tar paper over it, and we had plastic stapled into all the windows. And we had a wood stove in the house, and we had one big extension cord with about eight things coming off the extension cord, because, of course, we didn't have any electricity electricity yet. Um, and so anyway, that year for about a month in January, after it had snowed three feet of snow, we had temperatures in the low minus 20s for a month. Minus so, 20s in Flagstaff, Arizona? Yep. Yeah, the winter of 78, 79 was a m remarkable year in Flagstaff. And so the snow stayed. We couldn't, you know, drive anywhere close to the house because there was so big snow drifts out there. You had to march across this big, huge, open, wind-driven area to get into town to go to work and so on. So anyway, when people say been there, done that. Yeah, you've done it on a whole other level. You've done it a hundred <laughs> times over, it sounds like. <laughs> My God. It was quite the experience and yet so rewarding. So rewarding. And, ah. you know, for a young person today, I would just say, you know, um, you got to start building equity somewhere. And that's how um, I did it with um, this, the help of this one other person. So yes. Wow. And it sounds like you just have the most incredible work ethic and <laughs> resilience. I mean, that experience takes a lot of resilience to face and get through. Do you think that you developed that with you know, some of those tours with your parents or on the farm when you were in Austria? Is it is it kind of ingrained in you from your parents' lifestyle? Or how did how do you think you developed that? Because that takes you have to dig deep for that to get through an experience like you just mentioned. I would have to say that it's it's kind of a German thing, right? It's just kind of, you know, you have to work hard for everything you get. And of course, and, and, and the German part of that is, well, what else would there be? There, you know, I mean, my parents coming as immigrants, you know, they had to really scrabble hard and save hard and work hard to build their dream. And, you know, and they did build their dream. They, and so you see that hard work actually will pay off. And it's not, it's and that takes me back to the uncle farming in Austria. It's not always fun, but it's definitely rewarding. And rewarding sometimes trumps fun. Yeah, of course. I think it. I think the rewarding piece of it is what makes it fun. Looking back. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Did your parents communicate? Obviously, they showed you a strong worth ethic, a strong work ethic. But did they communicate to you? Um, a need for stability or security, or was that pursuit of a dream and fulfillment more important to them? And was that a part of your childhood and conversations that you had with your parents growing up? Because it sounds like you really pursued um, the things that you were passionate about, whereas I've heard stories of many other immigrants, children of immigrants who have chosen very... Um, structured careers like doctor, lawyer, something along those lines, because they know that it's safe. And mm -hmm. many immigrants want their children to come to America and have safety and security. Hmm. Was that what was that communication like with your parents? What what side were they on? I guess that's a fascinating question. That's really quite a fascinating question. Um, 
I would have to say, first of all, you know, I'm an only child. And um, one of the things that I wished my parents would have done is shared more information about those kinds of perspectives. You know, there are many ways to live a life. But my parents didn't really provide much guidance at all, besides my father, the engineer, saying that, you know, there's no future in animals. Mm. Um, he kind of came from that, that ethic of science and mathematics. And I remember him being an engineer at Air Research, coming home, bringing work home from the office, and doing his math on a slide rule. Okay, now I'm not ancient, but um, that was true in the um, mid to latter 60s, you know, before calculators and stuff. You know, I mean, things have changed so much in one lifetime. So anyway, back to your question about did they instill in me some kind of a path? They didn't, which is why I kind of, you know, ended up um, at 18 with a guy going, hey, you know, let's let's build a house. <laughs> so anyway, um, I think I was actually 20 or 22 before we actually did buy the land and build the house. But nonetheless, um, it my life has been very freestyle. Yeah, that's amazing. And do you look back on that experience of buying that land and building that house with your partner as something that had to happen? It sounds like you built equity through that. Did that equity make it possible for you to then pursue this dream of moving to Maui? Well, yes. And so now the feminist part is going to come out in me and just say that, you know, I remember very distinctly my mother getting an envelope with $120 a week, and she was supposed to run the household on that. And if she needed clothing or shoes or glasses or anything else, there was your envelope. And that's how much her allowance was to run the household. And I just thought, you know, I am never going to be in a situation where I have to ask somebody else for, you know, can I please have I need something? Okay, so I ended up buying out the partner after we built the house in Flagstaff. I sold that house out there on the skirts, on the outskirts of Flagstaff. And by that time, I was working for a very reliable medical device company um, full time. And so I went into town and bought a house in there that it turns out I totally remodeled it in the next 10 years that I owned it. So I was building equity with the next house that I owned. During those years that I was going to work every single day, I also became, because remember, having built the house, I mean, I was carrying, you know, bags of concrete and blocks and wood and so on. And um, I, my back was like destroyed at the end of all that. So I started going to exercise classes. And so my passion for those 20, I worked for the Gore-Tex company for 21 years. Uh, for 18 of those, I went to exercise classes, group fitness classes, um, five days a week at least. And I became so strong and all my pain was gone and so on. So that's important because it becomes a transition to when I finally leave Flagstaff. It's kind of good to hear that because a lot of people will avoid pushing themselves further, you know, and it can give you like a whole new life if you are able to heal yourself. I exercise as medicine is mm -hmm. the motto of the American College on Sports Medicine. And I believe it to this day. You said that you worked for a medical device company. How did you get from animal husbandry to then working for a medical device company? 
Well, when we moved to Flagstaff and we're living out there in the house with the plastic on the windows and Michael is working for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, I needed a job. And so I had been a veterinary technician. And so at that time in Flagstaff, Arizona, there was three veterinary offices and I would go every two weeks and say, do you need a veterinary technician? Do you need a veterinary technician? And it was like, well, maybe if my current veterinary technician moves away or dies, I might need a veterinary technician, but there was just no openings. And so I ended up calling uh, one of my horse vet friends down in Phoenix and saying, oh my God, what am I going to do? I can't get a job here in Flagstaff. And they told me about this medical device company. And so it turns out that um, anatomy, physiology uh, background was helpful, and I was able to get an, an a role. And uh, I learned so much again about health and wellness because, you know, we were making artificial arteries and veins for people who had cardiovascular disease. So it's like, well, how do you avoid cardiovascular disease? You eat well, you exercise. So it's all this incredible circle, um, my life, how that's panned out. It was total serendipity that I got that job that ended up changing my life um, in such a good way. And, you know, and that life then took me to my connections to running rivers and showing dogs and, you know, on and Mm -hmm. on. So, And one other thing that I want to point out, I myself have been resistant to sometimes taking jobs that I'm not so excited about or that don't feel so aligned for me because of the need, like you said, sometimes you just need a job and sometimes you just need to pay the bills and support your lifestyle. And it's not always, you know, your most passionate career. Sometimes it feels a little bit random. So it's, it's nice to hear that both can happen within the span of a career and a life. But at that time where you really just focused on, supporting yourself and your family and maintaining that independence that it sounds like was really important to you? Or were you thinking like, oh, I have to take this job and it might be a little bit soul sucking, but it actually ended up being a pretty positive experience? Well, let's just say that um, um, when I said it was serendipity that this um, friend of mine had pointed me at this company, I say that totally. The company was deep in the forest. You couldn't, unless you knew it was there, you wouldn't even know that it was in Flagstaff, Arizona. Okay. So um, I went there to their lobby and I said, you know, how do I apply for a job? And the entire lobby had this huge atrium of tropical plants. Plants. And so actually, it was the diff, it was the opposite, Stephanie, I was like, I want to work here no matter what. So I went back there every two weeks. And I said, you know, would you do you have a job opening? Are you going to hire me? When when can I start, you know, and I kept going back. And I think on the third or fourth visit, they said, sure, we'll hire you. You're our kind of person. It was founded by a man named William Gore, who was um, a true thought leader in business, and he really believed in people. And so, yeah, I learned a whole lot from my years at the Gore Company. And it was an accident that I started there, and yet it was one of the most formative things that has ever occurred in my life. There I met people who... Again, my parents being immigrants from Germany, they kind of, you know, Germans in general, I mean, I remember being a little kid in, in actually in first grade in America, 
you know, people calling me Nazi and stuff. I mean, it was hard to be from Germany. And so, like I said, they kind of had their heads down low. They didn't talk to me much about how to succeed in America because they were still quite traumatized after the horrific war years and all. So going to the Gore-Tex company, finally, I was getting mentorship from people, you know, with a broader perspective about, you know, business and about careers. Interesting. Well, that's actually even more useful to hear because what your story shows is that you don't always know and you don't always need to know. Sometimes you just have to trust. Yeah. And follow the path and trust and allow yourself to be open to these experiences that you couldn't have planned out yourself. You never even would have seen that office if you hadn't been invited there by your friend. Yep. It always goes back to trust. <laughs> it, 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 that is really very, very true. I just went in there and gave it my all. All I can say is I learned so much. Um, and that, again, took me from animal husbandry, from veterinary medicine to human medicine. I think that probably, you know, I mean, I would have known better than to take a job, you know, in manufacturing or engineering or something that totally didn't interest me. But the job that they offered me was working with animals. And so I was like, well, that I can do that. That's a good transition path. And then it was animals in the um, realm of helping humans. So I'll let you now tell us how you did make that move from Arizona to Hawaii. And were you already thinking about leaving Arizona? It sounds like you were actually pretty happy. Things were going pretty well. And you were learning a lot. You had great mentors, probably a really beautiful community. And sounds like you had set up quite a satisfying life for yourself in Arizona. So why uproot that? That's very, very true. So um, let's see, in 1988, um, some of my work partners from Gore, they took a year off, a year off sabbatical, which was allowed, and they um, bought a sailboat, and they went sailing in the Caribbean. My dream! <laughs> Are you kidding me? Wow! <laughs> and, and they said, they sent me a message, and they said, you know, come and meet us in Grand Cayman, and you can do a passage over to um, Belize with us. Oh and my so, and so anyway, so um, I in like I said, that was my very first trip ever into the tropics. I had always just been in air in you know Europe in Germany, um, and then in Phoenix, and then in Flagstaff, but I'd never been in the tropics. So I went to Grand Cayman for ten days. I was supposed to do a passage with them, but there was some kind of tropical disturbance or whatever, so they were not going to take their little sailboat as novice sailors over to Belize, and we stayed on the island. And I had the best time, even though it rained for seven of the 10 days, I was like, I mean, I hate to use the adage, but a pig in shit. I just had a wonderful, wonderful time. It was warm. All the plants in my house were trees and they were hedges and it was like blooming and it was, and it was balmy and, you know, and so that's what made me say, even if I have to be a maid, I am going to spend part of my life in the tropics. So that planted the seed. Some years later, I was um, with my second partner, and his his mother had a timeshare in Hawaii, and she took us to Hawaii for um, two two or three different times to Hawaii. And I was going, okay, this is it. I'm going to be getting there. But like you said, you're right. I had a great job, and there was not really an opportune time to switch careers. 
not for 16 years <laughs> after it took me that long after I had first gone to Grand Cayman until I finally said, you know, okay, I see an end. This is kind of like a break point. I can leave now. And I did this thing about where I sold the house. This is my second home in Flagstaff, sold it and thought, well, I can take this little pile of dollars and I'll go to Maui and I'll buy something there. And I'll be wow. free and clear. So yeah. <laughs> now, on the other hand, you got to remember now that my uh, my mother, who is now a widow, she's like um, thinking, oh my goodness, my only child is going to move to Hawaii, and I'm here. And she was still in Flagstaff, and the whole family was like, you're gonna what? You're gonna leave your mother in alone on the mainland, and you're going to where? <laughs> so, so anyway, but it was like, yes, yes, I am. That must have been a really difficult decision, though. I mean, my family even gives me grief now, and there's plenty of us here. You know, she's not alone. Like, <laughs> but they're like, how dare you move? That must have been tough to deal with. I know it's it's challenging for me. Well, maybe I'm not quite as sensitive as you are because I was going to Hawaii no matter what. I so. love that. I am too sensitive, 100%. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. So, I, anyway, I, I finally in the year 2000, end of 2000, um, was the cutting point from the Gore-Tex company. And I do want to, again, say I made such great friends there to this day. I'm in touch with them. We still do river trips together. Um, I still have, of course, a great place in my heart for Arizona because the Four Corners region is, you know, it's a, the mecca for outdoor activities. And someday I'll actually even return to that area, um, maybe, I think. We'll see if I can take the, take the winters. Then your um, your vision became really intentional. Like you went to Grand Cayman and you realized this is opening up a whole new part of my heart. I love what I'm experiencing here and this has to be a part of my life. Then you start have to envisioning how you're going to make it happen. When could that happen? And like you said, it wasn't the right time, but you were hanging on to that vision in the back of your mind and thinking, how am I going to alter my life in some way to live most authentically or feel more aligned with this dream that I have. So 16 years is a long time to hold on to that vision and and have the patience to um, allow it to unfold in a way that worked for you. Were you like a bit antsy to make it happen or did you did you let it go and really just say, again, I'm going to trust and let it unfold when it's meant to. Um, that's that's kind of what happened. Is I could not have uh, again left Flagstaff at that time. I wasn't financially secure enough, and I had this great job, and I had friends. And even though I didn't really care for winter, I was out there doing winter things because that's what you do when you live in Flagstaff. So you know that part um, really worked. And I remember this: the key thing here is now that. I'm starting to do the, this, all this exercise work. And, um, as I started to feel the year 2000 approaching and the project that I was working on was winding down, I became certified as a group fitness instructor. And that became the stepping stone for how, what would I do when I got to Maui? At least mm. I had something else. So yeah, the next thing that happens is this incredible thing about moving to Maui and then needing to find a place. 
Remember I told you how I'd come over a couple of times with yes. the, um, right? So I had met, I'd been introduced to some people. So boy, there's a, there's a little tiny bit more. After my first trips to Grand Cayman and to the Hawaiian Islands, I thought, you know, I can't really afford either of those two places. So I took, because um, it's 18 years um, till I get there, right? So many winters, I would take three weeks or so in January when I couldn't take the cold anymore and do a trip. So I went to Costa Rica multiple times. I went to Belize. I went to other tropical kinds of locations that I thought, well, these would be much less expensive, okay? And I could move there and grow flowers or whatever. And so when I would go, though, either Belize was incredibly underdeveloped. It was not developed at that time. It had a big, huge dirt road that went from uh, the main city down to Placencia, where there was nothing. And today you look at videos of Placencia, and it's just all nothing but high rises on the barrier reef. And Costa Rica at that time was a very Catholic Spanish-speaking country, and I was neither. I didn't speak Spanish, and I wasn't real Catholic, and I was a single woman. And I thought, man, I really can't move down here with my money and have no idea. You know, in the politics of Central America, we're always a little bit, you know, unstable. You just didn't know, and it seemed like just too risky. So I was back to the Hawaiian Islands, and part of my trips were over to Kauai, over to the Big Island. But the only people I knew in Hawaii lived uh, on Maui. So that's how I ended up choosing Maui as the place where I would uproot my entire self to. <laughs> wow. What I love is that that's all very intentional thought and then action. And you also really allowed you you allowed yourself to wait for an opening in your life to make it happen. You didn't force it along the way. You okay. allowed yourself to explore through the years and and start to save up and start to kind of piece together the little details of it. You just really allowed. That's really true. That yeah. is very, very true. And so then after I moved here, I was lucky enough to be able to rent a room from the people that I knew. And I started a six month long quest of looking at every single piece of property that was available for sale in the region that I considered that I would want to live in. And I was definitely hoping for a piece of property where I could grow and farm and so on, right? So you narrowed it down to upcountry pretty much off the bat because you knew that you wanted to farm? Yeah, that's true. That is true. Okay. I pretty much knew that I wanted to be um, part of the reason was because, of course, I would be bringing over my dogs for a larger piece of property in the relatively cooler kind of area. So, yeah, it's um, just for the people listening. It's about 10 degrees cooler morning, night, seasonal, always then down at the beach where I am. And that 10 degrees makes a difference. So, yes, I started the quest. I was, you know, Stephanie, another little funny part on that. I was signing with the realtors. I was in the office doing the final paperwork four times. And four times I said, oh, wait, no, no, stop. Okay. And and so the agency that is carrying me is like going, oh, my God, this nutso woman, she is never going to finish this up. They, they switched me to some junior person in the office. Okay. And the junior person says, you know, Okay, okay, she'd heard the story. This woman's never going to buy. Anyway, so she says, I've got a property I want you to see. It's up this certain road, okay? And I said, oh, I know that road. I don't, that's a really windy road. That's really wild up there. I'm not, I'm not sure. She says, come on, just let me show you the property. So 
I go with her and we drive up this very windy road and off to the side road and it's a dead end cul-de-sac and we drive up this dirt driveway and there all of a sudden is my house. I can see it. I know it. It's just absolutely where I want to be. This is perfect. Oh my <laughs> and, gosh. And so anyway, yep, the fifth Everything house. Everything is so kismet. It's crazy. It was. It was. It was. I loved this house from the first moment that I saw it. Not only the house, but the property. It's a two and a half acre property that had on it a, a started coffee orchard, but like really nothing else. It had not been planted out. And I was like, oh my God. And I could put hedges and blooming trees and I can add this and I'll add that. And like I said, I was excited from the first moment that I saw it. Wow. You waited until you knew, until you had that feeling of certainty within yourself. Like it's clear that you, right off the bat, you saw the house, you felt that excitement and you were sure. Whereas with the other properties, maybe you were kind of trying to talk yourself into it and then couldn't do it. That's right. And the realtors are going, you've got to buy it. You've got to buy it. The market's really hot. It'll be gone next week. And, you know, and so on. So you're dealing with that pressure. And yet it, each time it was like, something's just not right here. You have to wait until you know. When you know, you know. That's absolutely true. And I did. And I've never had a single regret that I didn't do any other house. I love this place. Incredible. So now you've been on this property for 22 years. And you said it already had the beginning beginnings of a coffee farm. So you didn't think that you were going to grow coffee, but was that what you focused on when you got there? Or were you trying to plant flowers and citrus trees? Um, you know, um, when I bought the property, first of all, I mean, I need to find a job. Okay. So I was, you know, that there was that there was going to be the thing about uh, needing cash flow to do anything. Um, and uh, again, very, very serendipitously, I, I think it was an ad probably at that time in the, you know, in the yellow pages, um, I'm trying to find a job as a fitness, a personal trainer. And the only people who had an opening at that time was a couple down in Wailea from Finland and uh, Hanu and Mario Celine. And they were very famous bodybuilders. And I don't know if it was the European connection or just serendipitous that I appeared at their doorstep on that day and said, you know, I'm looking for a job. So it was a very nasty 20-mile drive um, for me every morning, okay? But it worked out. I had a job um, in with a great clientele, a fantastic clientele, and I worked for them for five or six years. But, but I'm doing that five and six days a week, trying to pull together enough money to, you know, pay the mortgage, to buy some plants, to do the, you know, and so on. And in the meantime, I'm looking at the coffee that's planted out there, and it's kind of not very healthy. And I noticed that there's these big, huge rings of no growth all around each of the trees. Well, I come to find out that the guy's been spraying Roundup to um, keep the weeds from um, coming up in the coffee. And it was like, well, goodness sakes, if you're killing the weeds, what are you doing to the coffee? No wonder it's not doing wonderfully. So through the next, you know, um, connections, connections, you got to just talk and ask people. And the Maui Coffee Association uh, embraced me, they connected me with people who could help me um, understand, you know, what's needed for coffee, I started putting on all kinds of soil amenities and composted materials and on and on. It's interesting, because you hadn't farmed before. I'm 
How did you really know that that wasn't the right way to do it? Well, remember Michael, the guy with whom I brought, built the first house with? He yes. was very, very um, early in the world of organics. And his PhD thesis had to do with um, the utilization of uh, composted materials and how did it change the um, content of micronutrients in uh, the plants and the food crops. He used beets and spinach. And so anyway, I had an awareness, a pretty, and, and plus I'm a very strong environmentalist. I had chosen when I was 16, I was like, I'm not going to have children because I want to leave room on the planet for uh, other life forms. And so that, that whole ethic of trying to do the right thing for the planet and the other species and so on, that's just a very strong ethic in me. And so um, Roundup just didn't fit into that picture. And yet, in that era, Roundup was being used kind of like uh, Kool-Aid here on the island, you know, as a means of controlling things people didn't want. And now we recognize that that's, you know, got significant human and probably um, right down the food chain um, implications for other uh, living things. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so yeah, so it, because that coffee orchard took up, you know, a, a pretty significant part of the property, it was like, well, you know, this is here and I'm going to learn how to do this. And I love plants. And oh, by the way, I'm a coffee addict. Okay. So you're excited about the coffee. Always okay. excited about the yeah. coffee. <laughs> okay. Okay. Got it. And you knew good coffee. So you could taste probably that this was not good coffee and that you could do better. <laughs> well, I knew that I could do better than what it was looking like. So yeah, that was very true. Okay. So it was very fun. Uh, lots of mentors along the way. Such a common thread through your story is that people have played a huge part in guiding you to where you've ended up and where you wanted to be all along. But it really it really took the beautiful people that came in and out of your life to help you get there. And you've allowed that to, again, be patient and and wait until that natural kind of evolution presented itself. Yep, that's true. And you gotta you gotta trust, you know, humans mm. for the most part. This was a Bill Gore kind of a um, belief that humans want to do the right yes. thing. That people want to do the right thing. And so um, I think for most of us that is mm -hmm. correct, and it's definitely a great privilege. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah. So you obviously had to work diligently to learn these practices and then put them in place teaching you're a personal trainer on the side or not on the side full time. I mean, you're spending your days it, it driving was. there and it then was. working physically. So it, it took, I'm sure years to cultivate this land and really build it into something that you could share outside of your property, maybe with other people at the farmer's market. How did, how did that like first revenue stream come about? Uh, yes. So, so about four years after I moved here, my mother wisely looked up and said, you know, I'm here all alone in America. And she said, you know, and she, of course, she'd come to visit a couple times and she moved here. How could you not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And she really loved the farm and she really helped with, she helped tremendously with the farm. Obviously her being here made it such that I was not quite so, um, on the financial mm. edge, because buying a two and a half acre piece of property on Maui, you know, is a is a significant investment. And it was more than what I had left Flagstaff with and so on. So I had to work hard. Anyway, we finally about 2003, I was ready to start bagging and selling some coffee. 
And I had a kayaking buddy in uh, Denver, Colorado, who is now a very famous artist. And I said to her, I need a label designed. And I would really like for that label to um, have an environmental message. And I hear this is this iconic bird that they have here in the Hawaiian Islands. It's called an EEV. And what about if we put the EEV on the coffee cup and hopefully that will start a conversation with people about our, you know, native forest birds who are actually in a fair amount of crisis. And so Amy Winter designed for me this beautiful label that I still have today on my coffee. But it was good. We, we, we grew it. We, uh, we have to ferment it, right? Okay, it's a long process. Let me give you a brief step about coffee. It has to be picked when it's fully ripe. Many people will pick it when it's underripe. But so anyway, there's this learning about when is the coffee blood red. Um, it's, it comes in a little fruit that looks like a, a very small cherry. And when it is fully blood red, it is time to pick it. Every coffee cherry has two beans in it. And these then have to be fermented when they come out of the fruit because they have all of this gelatinous fruit material still on them. So you have a machine that presses the fruit. The two beans come squishing out into one bucket and the fruit goes into a different bucket. And now you take all the beans and you ferment them in their own water. And that the bacteria eats off the rest of the fruit. And now you have this hard and crunchy feeling when you put your run your hands through it. You have to wash it very, very thoroughly and you put it out in the sun to dry. And um, it dries on the drying racks for days and weeks, depending on how moist it is, how much rainfall is happening and so on. And you schlep these um, drying racks under the roof when it's raining and back out when it's sunny, and it takes time. Finally, when the coffee is very dry, actually close to about 10% moisture, then it can be either stored um, and for later, or you put it through another mill that takes off one more shell. Think like rice hull, mm -hmm. okay? And that hull comes off, and now it's called green coffee, and it's ready oh to roast. Gosh. So, of course, all through this, I'm slowly acquiring the moisture meter. I'm acquiring the pulping machine. I had to buy the milling machine. Oh, geez, I need certain kinds of bags to store it in and so on. So learning, going to trade shows, you know, the Hawaii Coffee Association had a show every year and just talking to people, visiting farms, slowly learning. And not rushing the process because you are still supporting yourself through personal training. That's absolutely right. That's right. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't desperate by any means. Um, so we started to have a little bit of spare coffee. And we had a small little tiny farmers market up here in the town called Makawao. And it started out with about six or eight people selling things out of the back of their car, you know, extra bananas or breadfruit, or I got too many papayas or whatever it was. And I would be there with my coffee bags and I would tell everybody the story. And I had picture books, you know, showing them the farm and all the farming practices. And that's been true. Uh, we still, to this day, sell at the Upcountry Farmer's Market, which is now moved to a new location. It has a wonderful leader. His name is Neil. And Neil makes sure that everybody at the farmer's market is only selling things that they grew or made with, you know, Maui ingredients. And so anyway, and now he's got a farmer's market with about 110 vendors at it. And we've been there for the full 18 years that he's been doing wow. it. So, yeah. I never <laughs> knew that coffee took so many steps. 
to produce oh, those boy. little beans. I have so much more appreciation for it already right now. I'm I'm thinking about my coffee sitting right next to me. And I'm like, my God, I haven't appreciated this enough. You can taste the difference though in like, I can taste in your coffee that more maybe attention or love or intention was put into the production of those beans than I think some of the other coffee that I've had. You can taste a real difference. It feels higher vibration, which sounds a little bit woo-woo, but it does. It <laughs> does. I've heard that before. Really? That's really funny. Oh, that's so yes, funny. I have. I've heard that from people. So yes, many steps. Most people don't know that. Um, this hand picking is incredibly labor intensive. You just can't imagine. I mean, we pick every tree from about March through end of July, once a week or so. Okay. And you're looking through the branches for where are those super ripe cherries and those then need to come off from the time they are ripe and ready. They have about a week of perfection and they need to come off in that time frame. Wow. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a lot of work. So give me a brief rundown of what your team looks like to manage that now and what your day-to-day looks like in that time period from March to, did you say July that you're harvesting? The end of July. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see. So, um, you know, labor is of course very expensive on Maui. Remember the EEV on the label? Well, one winter, I got a little postcard from a group I'd never heard of before, and it said, wouldn't you like to support our work? It was the Maui Forest Bird Recovery Project. And so I said, well, of course, and I wrote out a check to them, and I sent them two bags of the coffee with the check, and I said, sure, you know, I love your bird, and this is great, and, you know, here, I hope this helps with your efforts. Well, I got a handwritten letter back from somebody like five days later, and and the woman's name was Dusty Becker. Now, remember, my last name is Becker, yeah. right? So I was like, OMG, you know, you've got to come down. I got to meet you. So Dusty Becker comes over and she tells me all about the work of the Maui Forest Bird Recovery Project and how they are trying to um, understand. Remember, so much of nature we don't even understand, you know, um, the full range, the the um, things that are making it good and, and bad for the animals to survive. And so through Dusty Becker and the work of the Maui Forest Bird Recovery Project, I learned that cats, rats, mongeese, all of these birds um, had not been exposed to, you know, these kinds of threats. But most of all was the uh, uh, avian malaria, which is carried by mosquitoes. And mosquitoes uh, carry this virus that gets into the birds and will kill our native birds. Mm -hmm. And so we're having tremendous losses of our native birds here in the islands. And I thought, well, you know what? I want to start giving to this on an ongoing basis. So we give 5% of our gross to their work to um, help support what they do. And in exchange through the years, when they have got, because they too, they they actually have a hired team. They're out there in the forest, you know, capturing, banding, um, taking blood samples. Actually, this past three years, they've been planting 65,000 trees on Maui, trying to um, expand their range. So they'll have more place to be, to live. And the trees they're planting, they're planting them higher up 
because global warming is making it so it doesn't get as cold. The mosquitoes are going higher. They're killing the birds at more and more elevation. So they're trying to expand the forest upward on the slopes of Haleakala. Mm. So anyway, so when you ask me about my workforce, it has been mushy. I'm going to use the word mushy. It's been, you know, um, relatively non-stable. Um, and it's always a matter of who is available, who is interested, who can come, who needs a job. And through the years, we've always made this work. Now, I have to say that 10 years ago, I hired one person who actually lives on the property, and he's here full-time helping with the coffee 24-7, you know, 365 days a year. But during the picking season, we do need more um, help, and oftentimes it comes in the form of volunteers through, like I said, the Maui Forest Bird Recovery Project. Mm, wow, that's an amazing relationship that you have with them. We have to all try and help in any tangible way that we yeah, can. Of course. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Help is a bit inconsistent on the property. So are you able to fulfill orders consistently? And are you able to rely on the income stream from your coffee production um, to support yourself? Well, now that's a very interesting question. And I think that everybody should keep in mind um, that making it go in the Hawaiian Islands is not easy. It's it's an expensive place to live, period. Yeah. Um, so about, remember I told you that four years after I moved here, my mother moved mm -hmm. here. Uh, five, six years after I had moved here and I'd been doing the personal training and doing that long drive, I started missing the medical community because, um, I, you know, I really do like anatomy, physiology, healthcare, all that stuff. So I said, I'm going to go back to school. And sure enough, I went back to school and As if you didn't um, have your hands up. full already. <laughs> Well, you know, but I, I slowly eased out of personal training. Okay. The first two years, I was able to um, do the personal training while I was going to school, but not in the final two years. So I went and got a bachelor's in nursing. And um, right as I graduated from the nursing program in 2009, my mother had cardiac bypass. I wasn't able to go spend the usual um, one year in the doing night shifts at the ICU. And so I never became what you would call a full-fledged in the hospital RN. Nonetheless, I'm a full-fledged RN with more medical background than a lot of the gals have just because of my work at the Gore-Tex company. Anyway, today I work remotely as an RN doing case management. I have never been able to live totally off the income stream from the coffee. That would not be possible here on Maui. So I call myself a gentleman farmer or is that a gentlewoman farmer? Something like that. And I think that that works for me. I get to enjoy both worlds. I'm connected with, you know, um, people and corporations and, and all of that. I have a regular job with a regular income stream. And I continue to grow coffee to the maximum that we can um, get harvested, which some years we don't get it all harvested. In fact, I would have to say that every year we don't get it all harvested just due to lack of labor and time. Mm. But anyway, we do our best. 
Um, and yes, I am able to fulfill orders until about usually in January because of the holiday rush. Usually January to February, I have to pull back. We don't have coffee to um, sell as much because we've run out from the previous year and we're waiting for the harvest to start in March. But it's been a wonderful dual income stream. And um, yes, that's how that works. Yeah, yeah. So looking ahead and what you want for the future of the farm, do you think that it would be possible to... I don't know, shift more resources into the farm to make it a more efficient process and potentially scale that business? Or is it just with the um, tedious work of hand picking these beans that that might not be possible? Is that something that you want to shift or do you like it the way it is? I would have to say that having the, um, you know, the you get benefits from working for a company, you get health insurance, you know, um, some people are doing the 401k thing, you know, mm. I can't imagine. Well, but let me just say, so 20 more years has passed. Okay, so 18 years in Phoenix, 22 in Flagstaff, 22 here, added up. I'm starting to look for a gentle exit plan, right? And so my exit plan, um, I feel very blessed. I believe that I found um, a younger couple who wants to take over the farm. And I've told them, how about I live in the cottage because I do have a cottage here on the property that's been a part of the income stream as well, renting the cottage all through these years. I'm sorry I didn't mention that, but so it's a three-pronged income stream um, that I have here. And, and I I'm planning to, you know, transition the farm to them to live in the cottage to help them with the farm after I retire from my work. And so, um, yeah, a soft landing, we'll call it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really ideal. What a beautiful plan. Yeah, yeah. And you know what, that in the way that you just said that, Stephanie, I really have always believed that you have to know where you're going in order to get mm -hmm. there. And so I'm a person who plans years down the line and just waits for it to happen. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you, you, if you do not know where you want to be, I'm quite positive you won't get mm -hmm. there. And, you know, it means, it means choosing paths that kind of gently take you in that direction. Gently. And as, yeah, that's key yeah. because it you do have the foresight and you do have to take intentional action, but intentional action and planning doesn't mean forcing. And I think that's something that I've been learning and maybe other people will learn along the way, too. And even hearing this is reinforcing that, that it's it can be gentle. And actually, the timing of everything was meant to be in your case, the way that everything unfolded, the timing that you met people and the job experiences that you had. It sounds like allowing it to gently unfold was key all along the way. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And not being yep. afraid to follow your passion. Mm -hmm. Just make sure that, you know, if you think, oh boy, you know, this doesn't feel right. Or, you know, this is a great job opportunity, but like you said, it really doesn't suit me. It really doesn't fit me. Then by all means to just say, you know, there's the wait. It's like the house thing. The house thing was the best one. I still tell that story because 
the, 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 again, over those six months, how many times I could have taken a path that would have led me to a real dead end here on Maui without the ability to grow into this farm and to have the cottage and so on. And instead, you know, to have that realtor say, oh, no, no, you've got to come look at this, you know? And so. Mm -hmm. And trust, trust your knowing, trust your intuition that's whispering, (laughs) telling you. Yeah. (laughs) Telling you the right choice. Well, thank you so much, Bobby. Your story is fascinating. I didn't know 99.9% of this. And this was such a fun journey that you just took us on. And all these lessons I need to apply in my own life right now. So I am very grateful. Thank you so, so, so much for your time. I'm going to make one last pitch. Don't forget, check us out www.mauihomegrowncoffee.com. It is the most (laughs) mind-blowing coffee I have ever had. I think about it constantly. So please, everybody, (laughs) get her coffee immediately. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Bye, Bobby. Okay, Stephanie. Aloha. Bye-bye.